ready to look at the Gospel of Luke together? We're getting near the end. I'm sad. I don't want it to end. I'm loving Luke. Are you loving Luke? I hope so. I'm not talking about loving Pastor Mark, talking about Luke. I'm talking about, are you loving Luke? What God is teaching us, it's amazing stuff. And so we're near the end. We're in Luke chapter 21. And so you can get there. We'll start reading some of it in a, in a, in a couple minutes. In chapter 20, let me kind of set the, set the idea here, the, the background for you here. In chapter 21, uh, Luke continues on with the same general concept and theme that he's been writing about for the last, like, three chapters. Primarily, how can his followers, you and me, live the best lives possible as we await his return? And we don't passively await, we actively await it by things like taking the risk to build a great Christian school and develop it. Um, how, do we, how do we do our best to actively live for him, knowing that eventually he'll come and establish his kingdom completely, but right now we're in this time that we've been calling the in-between, between his first coming and his second coming. Um, and the setting for chapter 21, as he's dealing with this concept, uh, is in the temple in Jerusalem. That's what we're going to find in a second. They're at the temple, Jesus and his disciples at the temple in Jerusalem. And they're actually in the treasury area. Jesus is always going to places where it has something to do with money. He's trying to, we talked about that last Wednesday night in our class, how he's not a period about money. He just knows that money is the great revealer of what's really going on inside of us. And they're in the treasury area of the temple, and they're watching, it's interesting, they're watching people give gifts in the treasury. And they're watching and says there's a people who have a lot of resources, and they're putting lots of money in the treasury. Um, but then it talks about a poor widow who comes. And the poor widow comes and she puts in just two little, almost worthless copper coins. And Jesus makes a statement to his disciples that that little poor widow with the two almost worthless copper coins gave more than anybody else. And he says for this reason, because the rest of the people gave out of their surplus but she gave out of her poverty. Matter of fact, she, it says she gave all that she had. Somebody could say, well, that's cruel and unusual, and how could Jesus even celebrate that? It was because of this. This old widow lady knew something that the rest probably didn't, that God was her supply, and she could fully trust in him. And, and that, that was an act of saying, I completely, desperately trust in God to be my provider. But as this is going on, as they're watching this unfold, the disciples start to talk about the temple, this, this place of worship, this beautiful temple that's there. And it, and it would have been incredibly majestic. We know from what we can understand from history, it would have been incredibly majestic. And if you understand from church history what this is, this is the rebuilt temple. The temple that had been destroyed earlier and then had been rebuilt under the ministry of Ezra. Ezra, if you read about Ezra the prophet, he's the one who led this. And then Herod had come and even expanded this beautiful temple. And we know it was beautiful. It was considered at that time one of the architectural wonders of all of the earth at that time. And Jesus, looking at it, they're, by the, they're in the temple, they're by the treasury, they're looking at people give. The disciples are ooing and aahing over the majesty of the temple, which represented to the people of Israel, who these were the Jews, the presence and reality of God. And Jesus tells his disciples that the temple is going to be destroyed. 
It's going to be knocked down. And he says, not one stone is going to be left upon another. And the disciples hear this. They've got to be, it almost got to not compute because it's just this amazing symbol of the presence of God. It's this incredible piece of architecture, one of the great wonders of the world. And he goes, Jesus says, you know what? This whole thing's going to come to ruin. It's going to be destroyed. So the normal question for the disciples to ask is what they ask. And it tells us in the text. They say, well, when's it going to happen, Jesus? Tell us about it. So what we have in Luke 21 is Jesus teaching his disciples about what's going to happen leading up to him. How is the temple going to be destroyed? What's going to happen in that period of time? And he talks about the temple's destruction. But then after he talks about that, then he moves forward and says, and here's how I need you to live. Here's the right way to live in the time not only waiting for the temple destruction, but also waiting between now and when I return again. So let's take this in two chunks. First, because there's something we're going to learn from the first chunk and then some very practical stuff in the second chunk. So let's look what Jesus has to say about the temple and Jerusalem being destroyed because it has implications for us. So, so chapter 21 of Luke, and we're going to start in verse 7. And we're going to first of all read about the temple being destroyed. Starting in verse 7, it says, They questioned him, saying, Teacher, when, therefore, will these things happen? He just said the temple is going to be destroyed. When? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See to it that you are not misled, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, Do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Then he continued saying, um, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes and in various places plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and to prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake, and it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or to refute. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you'll be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair in your head will perish. I should preach a sermon on that sometime. How can you say you're going to be killed, but not a hair in your head's going to perish? He's talking about eternal life. Verse 19. He says, I'll see you through to the end. But your endur but but your endurance, or by your endurance, you will gain your lives, eternal life. Verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her de- desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all nations." And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles 
are fulfilled. Now, there's a couple things that we need to point out about this. Because you could say, Pastor Mark, why did you possibly even waste our time looking at this? Because Jesus was talking about what was going to go on between the time they're looking at the temple and when it's going to be destroyed. And so that's already happened. We know that. So what's the point? Well, there's some really important points to this before we move on that I think that we need to understand. The first point is this. Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple um, and the destruction of Jerusalem. And so the question is, was he correct in his, in his prophecy, in his prediction? Was the temple in Jerusalem destroyed? Yeah. AD 70, um, it was destroyed. Romans sacked Jerusalem. They destroyed the city. They burned the temple. They completely leveled it. Not one stone was left upon another. Matter of fact, the temple was never rebuilt. Fast forward 2,000 years to today, the temple still has never been rebuilt. And when, if you were going to Jerusalem, and some of you have been there, and, or you've seen in the news the place that we call the Wailing Wall, where people put little pieces of paper in, and they pray, and they bow, and they're praying to the Wailing Wall, that is actually part of the exposed original foundation of the temple. It's never been rebuilt. That's actually the foundation of it, where they're praying. So why is it important to point this out, that Jesus said it was going to be destroyed? Because Jesus was right. That's why we point it out. And if he was right about that, he's right about whatever else he says. If he looks down in the future, he is God, and he goes, guess what? This is going to happen, even though everybody else believed it couldn't happen. Then when Jesus has to say something to us, we best listen. Right? So that's the first thing of importance. He said it would happen long before it happened, 70 years before it happened. It happened exactly the way he said he was. So when he says other things that we're going to be looking forward, other things, we can have confidence that we can trust that. So that's the first thing. What else is important to notice about this, about his time from when he predicted the temple being destroyed until it was? Verse 24 is really important because it speaks to our time today. Verse 24 says, And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all nations. So he's talking about the nation of Israel being destroyed, temple leveled, and the people um, dispersed because they've rebelled against God. And it says, And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, non-Jews, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jerusalem was trampled under." Uh, until the, the time, Jerusalem will be trampled until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, what's the time of the Gentiles? What's he mean by that? The first destruction of Jerusalem in the temple came in 586 B.C., so before Christ. 586 B.C., when Babylonian um, armies came in and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple for the first time and exiled the people of God around, around the then-known world. So think Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's that period of time. When they were taken, they were exiled. So that became the time, the beginning of the time of the Gentiles, when Gentiles, non-Jews, occupied Jerusalem. And it continued in AD 70, when Rome then destroyed Jerusalem again, and foreign armies and foreign people, like the time of Jesus, foreigners, Gentiles occupy Jerusalem. And he's saying that will continue until God rescues and reestablishes the Jewish nation at the end of the age as part of the whole culmination of his second coming. 
So what's going on is we are right now in the time of the Gentiles, and I'm awful glad about that because it's a time when, when Gentiles, us, non-Jews, have been grafted into the family of God, and when the activity of the kingdom is expanding primarily among the Gentiles, and Scripture says it's happening so that when the, when the Jews eventually see what God is doing among Gentiles, it will actually make them jealous for God, and that will be part of the end time of them coming back to God. So we just need to remember that God is in this parenthesis of time right now called the time of the Gentiles, but God has not forgotten Israel, and neither should we. And that's why it's important today. And you can think of all the political applications of that. But I want to be on the side of Israel because God has not forgotten Israel. So that part of that Luke is talking is part of Luke here. Jesus was foretelling the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And there's some implications for that. Number one, we can trust what Jesus says because what he said happened, so we can trust whatever else he says. And number two, we're in this parenthesis of time called the time of the Gentiles right now. You and I live in it. And we need, and we can be grateful for that, but we understand in that period of time. Um, also, remember, God still has a plan for Israel. Okay, so it's super important. But then what Jesus does in Luke 21, and I better speed up here. What Jesus does in Luke 21 is he looks beyond that, and he tells about the time from the destruction of Jerusalem until the time of his coming, and that's the period we're living in right now. So let's read Luke 21, 25 to 36. And see about the time he says we're now. There will be signs in the sun and the moons and the stars. And on earth dismay among nations. In perplexity um, at the roaring of the seas and the waves. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of heavens will be shaken. Then they will come and then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable. Behold, the fig trees and all the trees, as soon as they put forth leaves, you see, that it, that it, and no, you see it and know from your, for yourself that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on your guard so that your hearts will not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, and that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon, upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now, in this section, there are primarily, if you break it down, there are three declarative statements, three things that Jesus says um, that he makes about how we should live as we look forward to the, what's he say here? The Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. How do we live as we're anticipating that happen? And I think this is a great frame for how we can live our lives. And it's this way, I'll, I'll give you three statements and then we'll explain them. We live in this period of time like this. We live eternally focused. We live 
internally aware and we live spiritually strong. Externally focused, or eternally focused rather, eternally focused, internally aware, and spiritually strong. So let's look at these three things. The first thing, eternally focused. Look at verse 28. Verse 28 says, But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. That statement, straighten up and lift up your heads. Now, Jesus had just been saying that there will be signs in the sky, there will be dismay among nations, there will be turbulence in the sea, and as a result, what's it say? And men fainting from fear. In other words, he's saying there will be external stuff going on all around us, problems and conflicts and danger, that people are going to live in fear, he says. Fear of the stuff that we have going on around us today. You know, what's going on today? Coronavirus, and everybody's afraid. Conflicts with Iran, and everybody's afraid. Crime in our streets, and everybody's afraid. And during the time of the Gentiles now, our world, he says, will be filled with conflict. It's not going to get better and better. It's going to get worse and worse. But for those of us who have Christ as Savior, our future is secure and we can trust him to care for us. So how should we live during this external time of conflict? All these things we are seeing. Jesus says, straighten up and lift up your heads. And I think there's real significance in those exact words and how he says this. During these days, we are to live with an eternal focus. We don't ignore the conflicts around us, and we actually offer something different than the conflict in the kingdom, but we do so with an eye on eternity. And so what does he say? He says, straighten up, stand tall. We have the confidence that God will care for us. We don't need to fear what's going on around us, and we don't need to fear the future. But then he says, lift up your head. In other words, he's saying, look up. Look up. Look at the promise of Jesus' return, because that's the whole thing he's talking about here. Look up. Don't look at everything around here. Look up and look at the promise of Christ's return. What do we do? We look past the external conflicts to the promise of a new heaven and a new earth. He says, how do you live in this time right now when I'm saying everything's going to be tumultuous? Stand up in confidence and look up and understand, look past all the conflict, because listen, your future is secure. Have an eternal vision. Look at the fact that there will be a new heaven and a new earth, that he's going to reconcile um, Israel together, that the Gentiles and, the, and it will all be brought together as part of this great end time um, move of God, and that, that there will be a new heaven and new earth where God reigns and conflict is gone. He's saying, stand with confidence and look up past these things because your future is secure. Secure. Now, friends, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul was explaining to the church at Corinth. Turning your Bibles a little bit back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at verses 16 to 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Remember, that life is going to be tough. There's conflict. Don't lose heart. Stand up, straighten up. 
For though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. He's saying the same basic message. He's saying, look beyond the temporal to the eternal. He says, we don't have to lose heart. We look to what is eternal, not to temporal things that are passing away. And in the midst of the conflict, we keep our eye on the promise of eternity. So Jesus says, straighten up. Don't be afraid. Let everyone else be afraid around you. Don't be afraid. The main thing Jesus says repeatedly in Scripture is, fear not. Why? Because all this stuff, how can I not be afraid? Because your vision is in a different place. It's on the promise of the secure future. He's going to care for you now, and you have this beautiful future awaiting us for all of eternity. So that's how we can look past the conflicts. Conflicts still affect us, but we can look past them with confidence that God will see us through. So that's the first thing that Jesus says, how do we live in this time? It's interesting. He doesn't say, oh, don't worry about it. It's going to be easy. No, he said conflicts abound, but straighten up, be confident, and look to eternity, because I'll take care of you. What's the next statement Jesus makes about living in the here and now and the time and the in-between? Look at verse 34. He talks about being internally aware, and this is so important, internally aware, verse 34. Be on your guard. When Jesus says to be on your guard, you think you ought to pay attention? Jesus says, Mark, be on guard. I better pay attention. Be on your guard so that your heart will not be weighed down. He makes uh, by three things. With dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. Why? And that the day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. So his return will not be like a trap coming on you suddenly. He says, listen, be on guard. So this won't happen. What's he talking about here? Be on guard. He's talking about being internally aware. And I'll explain this. And you go, wow, that's exactly what he's saying. Be internally aware. Jesus' last statement had to do with living in the reality of all the external stuff. Stuff from the outside coming at us that we can't do. I can't do anything about the, the coronavirus. I can't do anything about it. But here he's telling us to be on guard, to be aware of what's going on inside of us. Look, he's talking about things that will leave us, he says, if we're not on guard against them, they'll leave us unprepared for his return. Which he reminds us here, he says, will be sudden, like a trap. And if we're, not, if we're living in, in the wrong way, we're living in a way of distraction and misleading us, we won't be ready for when he returns. And look what he says we need to be on guard against. Three things, dissipation, drunkenness, and the worries of life. Now, Jesus could have said anything, but he pulls out three things because he knows human nature. And it's the same human nature that we had 2,000 years ago, the people he was writing to then. And all these things stem (coughs) from internal issues. Dissipation, drunkenness, and the worries of life all have a root on the inside, and I'll explain that. Dissipation. What's dissipation mean? 
dissipation could just, you could just write the word U-S-A over dissipation. Dissipation means indulgence in excessive pleasure. Indulgence in excessive pleasure. Um, isn't that interesting? He warns against a life given to excessive pleasure. He's not saying you can't have fun, but a life given to that. And it's like this. It's when, always, uh, when one is always filling their time with some pursuit of fun, some pursuit of entertainment, some pursuit of distraction. Why? Why would God point that out? Because it reveals an internal emptiness. When someone has to always be on the go, 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 do, 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 always filling their time with pleasure and parties and celebration and fun, it shows an, an internal emptiness. Can't sit alone with themselves. It reveals that a person is trying to fill a hole in their heart that can only be filled by God. So Jesus says, listen, be, on, be warned. Watch out. Look at yourself internally. Are you given to dissipation? In this time, he's saying all stuff's going to go around, and how are people going to deal with all the conflict all around? They're going to go, let's escape its reality. Let's fill up an empty hole and just be always on the run doing something to try to say, i got to find a way to find, to make, my, make myself happy and fill with pleasure. And basically, it's just being distracted. So he says, be on guard against dissipation. He also says, though, this is interesting, be on guard against drunkenness. And you go, well, that's, that's external. Absolutely not. Drunkenness is internal. And if there's any place and time in human history where this is a valuable message from Jesus, it is Ozaki, oh, it's the state of Wisconsin. It's Ozaki County, 2020, right here. There is no no culture. If you've moved here from somewhere else, one thing I hear from a lot of people who move from somewhere else, they say, hey, Pastor Mark, does everything here really have to do with drinking? I go, everything here has to do with drinking. You know, Milwaukee, the, the beer that made Milwaukee famous. Milwaukee was built on breweries, okay? Why would he talk about why people would be, be drunken? Excessive drinking. Excessive is drunkenness. Is excessive drinking. Why do people usually drink to excess? Oh, I just want to have a good time. Baloney. I used to be a person who drank to excess. I know from where I'm speaking. Why does a person drink to excess? They are sad. They are empty. They are lonely. There's probably a few more word, descriptive words, but that's why you drink to excess. You're sad. You're empty. And you're lonely. It's an internal issue. It's an escape. And Jesus says, be on your guard against this. Let it reveal to you that there are internal issues that need to be brought to Jesus and healed and delivered. There's stuff going on. The drunkenness is a revelation that something's wrong on the inside. You need to bring it to Jesus. These things need to be healed or he says, he's saying here, they can mislead you, misguide you. So when Christ returns, it's like a trap that comes suddenly and you're not prepared. Now, Jesus doesn't explain what that means, but it's surely not good, right? So he says, dissipation, 
be on your guard. Drunkenness, be on your guard. Recognize something's going on inside of you that needs to be healed and made better. And the third thing he says is the worries of life. So why do people worry, honestly? The real reason we worry is an internal issue also. The real reason we worry is insecurity. We don't have the confidence, and hey, I'm a master worrier. I got a PhD in worry. Why? We don't have the confidence that God can and will care for us and do what he says he's going to do. So we think our worrying can fix it. It's a control issue. If I worry enough, I can fix it. I can control it. I can make it better. So we lay awake at night and we mull it over. We try to figure it all out. Now, there's nothing wrong with processing. But it can become worry. Where we're really trying to control because we're insecure. Internal. Dissipation. Drunkenness. Worry. These are all internal. And Jesus says... Be on your guard. Be vigilant. If you see these things in your life, they are not to be ignored. They're not to be laughed at. They're not to be um, pushed aside as unimportant. Oh, that's just how I deal with pressure in life. I just drink a little too much. Baloney. Baloney. Say baloney with me. Baloney. It's baloney. You're lying to yourself. Stop lying to yourself. It is a big deal when you're drinking excessively. Dissipation is a big deal when you're constantly filling your life with stuff, with pleasure-seeking because you're empty inside. It is a big deal when you're worrying all the time because it's saying you really don't have the confidence in God. So it's baloney if we say it's not really. He's trying to help us. He's saying don't ignore these things. They are to be brought into the light. And one of the ways they're brought into the light is you admit it. So when I say here and I go, listen, I'm a master worrier. I'm bringing it to the light. Why? Because I, contr- I want it gone. I don't want to be a worrier. Guess what? I'm not nearly the worrier I was 10 years ago. I'm way better. Why? Because I keep bringing it to the light and bringing it to the light and bringing it to the light and doing what I can in God's grace to help it, to work it through. And we do those things. And we look for healing. And we look for deliverance. All that stuff, we bring it. We confess it and we repent. We say, God, I don't want it. And God, I'm going to go a different direction. Here's what we do a lot of times. God, I don't like it, but I'm going to do it again tomorrow. You know, we have, we have some action in this thing. Jesus is saying, listen, dissipation, drunkenness, worry, this internal stuff, they can lead us astray as we are looking forward to Jesus' return. And he doesn't want that for any one of us, does he? So how do we live in the here and the now? Eternally focused, externally focused rather, internally aware, and then one more thing he says in this this text. Verse 36, spiritually strong. Look at verse 36. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of God. Of man. Look at this little phrase he says in there. Praying that you may have strength. He's making a connection. There is a, there is a call to connection. Look, Jesus is such a realist. 
He knows that the world is going to be filled with all kinds of external pressures. And he knows that because of that, of, of the internal unhealed issues, we can get sidetracked through excessive pleasure and drinking and worry. So he reminds us where to run. He says, run to me, run to him. What's that look like? It's called prayer. Pray. It's just about putting everything else aside to be with Jesus. He knew he was going to send to the right hand of the Father, and he wouldn't be with us in the flesh. But he's assuring us that he is with us by the reality of his Spirit. So he says, pray. Come to me. Talk to me. Be with me. There's a saying, and maybe some of you have seen this on plaques at times, and it says this, when life gets too hard to stand, dot, 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 kneel. That's what he's talking about. When life gets too hard to stand, kneel. Jesus is tying the strength that we need to live well in the here and the now to prayer, to being with him. With that being the case, and he's very clear about it, pray that you will have the strength. In this case, strength to escape. But he could put anything else could follow. Pray that you'll have the strength to overcome. Pray that you'll have the strength, whatever. He's making this connection. And we see it so clearly, and I think we believe it. Then why is it that almost, that every study I've ever seen that has studied the habits of professed Christians says that we virtually don't pray at all. Matter of fact, the, 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 the extent of our prayer is generally extended to about saying some words before you eat a meal. Why? Could it be that's because we misunderstand prayer? Could it be because we think that prayer is about asking for stuff? And we have asked for stuff, maybe insignificant stuff, but also very significant stuff, the healing of a loved one, the restoration of a marriage, whatever it might be. We have asked, and we've not gotten what we asked for. So we conclude, prayer just doesn't really work. And we don't like to admit it. We don't say it out loud. We say it just doesn't really work. I tried, I asked, didn't work, why waste my time? I think that's the reason we don't really pray. But could it be that we're misunderstanding what prayer really is? Because friends, I don't believe prayer is primarily about asking for stuff. It's about being alone together with God. Prayer is about connection. Prayer is about relationship. How much strength would we gain if for some time every day we just got alone with God and sat with God and said, God, I want to be open to the reality of your presence with no distraction? No cell phone. No music. No daily devotions. My daily bread. What's whatever one else other people use? No Bible. 
You're going, you're telling me not to read the Bible? I am not telling you. Read my lips. I am not telling you not to read the Bible. But I am telling you, you won't understand the Bible if you don't learn how to sit alone with God. Because you can prove, I can prove anything I want out of, by misquoting this Bible to you. I will prove any, you give me any position you want to take and I'll prove it from the Bible. Because if you don't understand it rightly, it's actually, it, becomes, it becomes weaponized. And the church world does it all the time. Politics causes it to happen all the time. We weaponize the Bible. Why? Because we don't sit with God in His Spirit. Because we misunderstand prayer. We think prayer is about asking for stuff. And there is a portion of prayer, a part of reality of prayer that's asking for stuff. But that's not the main intent of prayer. The main intent of prayer is to sit with God and allow Him to form you into the person you're supposed to be so that you understand what this book is all about. What might He speak to our hearts? What might He heal so that we're not given to dissipation and drunkenness and worry? If we practice going to Him for strength, sitting, sitting with Him. In our text, Jesus ties prayer to strength. What if we were as committed to sitting with Jesus, just to be with Him, as we are to the other things that we fill our time with in order to distract us from the emptiness or the pain, or the worry that is in our hearts that we then medicate with dissipation or drunkenness or worry. Do you follow that thought thought there? What if we, instead of giving our energy to those things, gave our energy to being with the Lord? See, Jesus offers us spiritual strength for the here and the now. And he ties it with sitting with him with prayer. And I just think we should be smart enough to accept it (laughs) and do it. Because guess what? It ain't Mark saying it. It's Jesus. And he's saying it in the context of I want you to live a great life in the here and the now and I don't want you to be distracted and, and misled as you're waiting for the day the trap closes. And the trap, for it's not a trap closing if you're waiting. It's a celebration. It's a trap closing only if we're not living in in sync with the Lord. So I don't think there's any more appropriate way we could close than to just sit with Jesus for a few minutes. Open our hearts to Him and invite Him in and say, Jesus, I just want to sit with you. So we're just going to sit for a few minutes in the presence of the Lord. And maybe something that, that was said today or maybe something else the Spirit's saying today is just, is just kind of rising up inside of you this morning. Hold that, hold that with the Lord. He's not like a judge with a, with a club going, let me just see, oh, I can't believe you did that, Mark. Whack. Just the opposite. We're holding it and he's going, come on. He's hugging us. And he's saying, come on in the relationship. Let me heal you. So let's take a few minutes and just let the Lord heal us this morning.